you want to take your, your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 9. But the passage that really speaks to me, and I'll just quote this for you, we'll, we'll hit it here later. The passage that really speaks to me is Psalm 92, 13. Uh, that's, a, that's a verse that has really been gripping me in my heart. Uh, and I've got one of my favorite pastors. He says this every Sunday to his church. Uh, Those who are planted in the courts of God will thrive, will flourish in the courts of the Lord. And it's an, it's an invitation to be a part of Christian community. Those who are planted in the courts of God will thrive in the courts of the Lord. And, and you, you know this. Uh, for years and years and years in our culture, we practice a form of evangelical Protestant Christianity that, uh, that established certain buildings in certain strategic locations, and then we invited people to become members of the church so that they might experience belonging. But that's really the reverse order of New Testament strategy. The apostles would move in and would create community where people could belong so that over time they might become. And that's the idea of allowing people to come in and be planted in the courts of God so that they might learn to thrive in the Lord's presence. That's the, that's the hope of the gospel, right? So one of the ideas here that we've got is how do we create you know, these types of opportunities for the hurting to come and to receive compassion and healing. Now, here's a problem. Every discipleship, uh, every discipleship uh, teaching that I've ever heard, every church growth strategy that tries to address this, they really overlook something that is very important that you guys know. And I'm going to illustrate it by drawing your attention to Psalm 23, just for a second, before we go into Matthew. I'll quote it. You don't have to look up. But Psalm 23 is sort of like this, this, this idyllic, you know, here it's, it's one of the cornerstones of, of Bible teaching. How many of you know Psalm 23 already? You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, now I want you to think about this. That's, that's the good shepherd psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because the good shepherd is with me. His rod, his staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you know what one of the most overlooked things about that song is when you're thinking about the good shepherd? Is that is one cooperative sheep, right? I mean, seriously, have you stopped to think about that? It's like that is a cooperative sheep that just sort of falls in line with the good shepherd, right? And just goes where he leads. And the problem is if you are going to be a church of compassion and healing, you are purposely welcoming into the fold sheep that by their nature are not that cooperative. They're not that difficult. I mean, they're not that cooperative. They are difficult because they have spent their lives trying to create functional saviors 
functional shepherds to reach for that they could control that could somehow propel them into where they think they need to be to be successful. But every time it has led them to a pathway of, dest of destruction and brokenness. And if you have people who are, who are purposely sort of rejecting the good shepherd, it may make sense that as you're inviting them into your community, they may have a tendency to reject his under shepherds, the leaders that are trying to create that same type of experience. Um, one of the things that I do now uh, in, a, in a counseling sense is I work uh, a lot with families who, uh, who give uh, foster kids homes that are foster families or, or families that go through adoption, right? I have personal friends that have adopted kids. I know I have friends that are in foster care. I have done that for years. And, and, uh, and I work with those families and sometimes those kids because uh, it can be a real challenge. Uh, you people who would step into foster care or your friends or people that you know, you know here in the community, here's what I would say. Uh, man, if your heart's in the right place for that, like you are a rescuer. That's what you are. The rest of us are sort of JV. You're like varsity. You are rescuers because you are willing to, to bring very hurt individuals into the sacredness of your home and minister to them. And, and bless the DHHR and bless, you know, adoption agencies. They do their best, right? But you, if you talk to people, these rescuers who have opened up their home, Pretty much across the board, they will tell you we had no idea what we were getting into. Because what you're getting into typically is a young person who in the very formative years of their life was not able to develop any sort of skill to attach. Uh, when a child is newborn up to, uh, you know, through infancy, infancy up to maybe just the beginning of the toddler years, there's a very narrow window there that's very important. It's, a, it's one of the most important parts of life phase development, and that is where attachment takes place. In a family that is together and that fits the, 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 uh, the architecture of God's plan with a mom and a dad, mom and dad both plays the role, but the mom, the nurturer, as she is giving life to that child, the substance that that child needs. You know what I'm talking about. There, it triggers a sense of attachment that will serve them the rest of their lives. But because of neglect or abuse or, or whatever, what you will see is many of those kids who live through very horrific circumstances, they look like normal, loving, just got it all together kids until they hit maybe four years, five years old, seven years, they get older, and there is some bizarre behavior that starts coming out of these children. It's called reactive attachment disorder. It's called RAD. And you can spot it if you know what you're looking for. But as they come into your home, basically what it is is you've got this, this, this wonderful little person that you want to rescue, yet they have the potential because of their attachment issues to hijack your entire home. They can, you know, dysfunction is like a black hole, man. It will suck you in. <laughs> and unless you have a strategy, unless you know specifically, okay, realistic expectation, here's what we need to do. It has the capacity to pull you into codependency where everybody's playing a role in the family just to survive because that's all this, this newcomer into the family has known is survival. 
this making sense? You guys are all nodding your head like, yeah, we get it, right? Well, okay, so in order for you as a church, let's pull that out as a family of God to say, hey, we want to be about rescuing people. We want to be about rescuing people here in Clarksburg and beyond. And we're going to do whatever it takes to become a family that can bring those people in and can bring in the hurting, the people who don't in, in, intuitively know how to attach and to be good family members. we got to have a plan. And the first thing that I would say is if you're going to have, if you're going to be a church of compassion and healing, then make sure that you're constantly cultivating compassion that you're constantly fostering a sense of compassion. Because it's like, I know that we're all called to love, and that's, that's, that's who we are as Christians, but man, it's hard to like sometimes, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's okay if I say this, like, I know I gotta love you, but man, I don't like you right now. And that, that compassion is what it's going to take to get us continually moving into those positions to make the greatest impact in people's lives who frankly need it the most and want it the least. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is moved. In verse 36, Matthew, he was a first-hand witness and he recorded this, 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 this display of emotion from Jesus. And it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And he goes on to tell the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray earnestly for laborers. Um, can I just tell you that that situation exists right here today? Uh, as you look around with the eyes of Jesus, you will see crowds of people, even with our population base, who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion, you may remember, we've talked about that before. That is a very uh, special Greek word that uh, means uh, you get sick to your stomach. You are so emotionally impacted by what it is that you're witnessing and experiences that it just, uh, it hits you right in the gut. You know, it makes you sick and it's just like, it's not something that you can just step away from and dismiss. That is the compassion that Jesus had that drove him to continue to not only reach out, to continue to pursue, but that's the compassion that would allow him to lay his life down for every one of us in the room. And what I want to suggest this morning is that, you know, there is, there's two sides to compassion. There's, there's tender love and there's tough love. And, and I think for most people, when we think of being compassionate people, we think of TLC, right? A little tender, loving care. That's all people need. And so this church, I have seen it, man. You guys do not shy away from strangers who come through the door, newcomers on a Sunday morning that maybe they've been referred here by different agencies or, or, or maybe it's the Clarksburg Mission. Say maybe some of you here this morning have said, yeah, I come over from the mission to go to church. This is a safe place for you to come. I've seen it. Um, I, I, I see how parents don't shy away from, from sitting in the same pew with people that you don't know may, may could look a little, a little 
uncertain at times, you know, and stuff. But this is a this is a house of worship that is built to bring people in. And the thing of it is, is I see the conversations that you guys make uh, with folks to just let them know that they're known by name, that there's somebody here that that will remember them when they come back, that there is somebody here that can follow up on them. That is awesome. That's awesome. But to be compassionate as a church doesn't just mean that you can foster tender love. If you are investing in people, there will come a time where you will have to show them tough love. And tender love is, is, is you know, it's something that is sacrificial. It's, hey, what I have is yours if it will help, right? But tough love is, I need to tell you the truth whether you want to hear it or not. And I need to also help you because it's obvious that you don't have self-control or boundaries. So let me show you what self-control and boundaries looks like. Because sometimes that's the, that's, the, that's the point, that's the breakover point that a person needs to finally get the traction to keep moving forward. Because if you're all about compassion from a tender love standpoint, then you will continually run the risk of just being an enabler, and that person will stay in that victimized mode the entire time. And they'll be glad to receive what it is you're giving them. But they're not going to make any progress. But tough love requires us to speak our truth in love. You know, I'll, I'll be really careful about this, but, you know, when I counsel a person, right, you're working through a counseling relationship with them, or this is even when I was a pastor before, you just, you run into certain people who they, they play that victim role. And, and, and every time you try to say, okay, well, let's, let's explore this area of struggle that you're having in your life. Let's look at this challenge that you're having. Let's, you know, whether it's a student or a, you know, a young adult or a, a senior saint or whatever, and you'll begin to catch that they have an excuse or a reason for all of their bad behavior. Right? It's so and so. This teacher hates me and this and that. you know. And, and it's, there's always this, this reason. And at a certain point, I'm, I'm, the best favor that I can do them is, is look them in the eye. I won't say this exactly. Most of the time, this is what I would say to a guy. I would say, look. If everywhere you go, it smells like you know what, at like a certain point, you should probably check your pants. <laughs> right? And please send your complaints to Pastor Phil <laughs> over that. But I'm telling you, that's a tough conversation to have. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're just like, man, I can't get any breakthrough everywhere I go. It's like, hey, when was the last time you sat down and said, can you be honest with me? I need, I need a perspective that's objective, but that's coming to me in love. What, what, what are my issues? We have to cultivate compassion, but compassion is not just tender love, it's tough love. Second thing that I would say is that you know, to be a, a church that's growing in compassion and healing, uh, we need to intentionally provide ministry, ministry structures and leadership that can absorb what I would call the pre-Christian or the wounded or the hurting. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I don't like referring to people as, uh, you know, lost sinners, unbelievers, whatever. That, that may fit them just fine. I would prefer to think of them as pre-Christian. 
Because if they're pre-Christian, that puts it back on me to be praying for them. That puts it back on me to form a relationship with them. That puts it back on me to create space where they have, their soul has room to breathe. And they can, sort of, they can sort of begin to understand the gospel by walking through life with other people whose lives have been impacted by the gospel. And so uh, becoming that type of church means that you figure out where do people get assimilated into what we have here as far as, you know, just basic evangelism, discipleship, life skills, leadership development. Uh, those are things that, again, you guys are going, yep, 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 you get it, you understand it, right? So let me drop it down another level. The Apostle Paul, when he was dealing with the most dysfunctional church in the scriptures, the church at Corinth, I mean, they outdo any of the churches that Jesus had a problem with in Revelation, okay? They were, they were jacked up, right? I mean, they were a mess. First Corinthians looked like, you know, Trailer Park USA when you walk in. You know, I mean, it was bad. And... Uh, I've lived on a trailer park for years, so I'm not trying to be, be bad there with that. But um, anyway, quit digging. <laughs> but here's what the Apostle Paul said. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said, listen, follow me as I follow Christ. He said, you don't have to, you don't have to understand it, you know, from, from, from any sort of, of deep theological, you know, perspective. You don't have to know all these important doctrines yet. He said, hey, listen. Just follow me as I follow Christ, and we'll figure it out as we go. And one of the greatest things a healing and compassionate church can do is to say, you know what, I know there are plenty of people who need help, but one of the, one of the smartest things we can do is invest in leadership development. Leadership development. Uh, that is beyond just taking people and in, in, in helping them, you know, through spiritual formation and discipleship and so forth, it's teaching people to lead from a point of servanthood. You know, the leadership of the world jumps way out in front and tries to drag people with them. Uh, Jesus said, you want to be great? Learn to be the least because servant leaders know how to come in under people and elevate them. And when a church decides we're going to be compassionate, we're going to be healers, but we're going to start with investing in leadership development, you see two things that happen. Number one, you're multiplying your capacity to increase and to minister and to help people grow, right? Because, uh, you know, the world, their type of leader does not produce anything other than followers. Uh, leadership modeled after Christ produces other leaders. So you're increasing your capacity to make an impact. But the second thing you do if you invest in leadership development is you are making sure that the tone setters in the church are the ones who are maturing and growing and healthy. Because friends, you know this, when you open up your church body to receive the hurting, you always run a risk of them growing and becoming the tone setters in your church. Yes? So do you close your doors and say, oh, we're at max. We've got, we've got enough of you people. You guys, we'll, we'll let you know, you know, here, let's pass out number cards and we'll get you in the queue. You don't do that. We, you know, whosoever, right? So leadership development allows you, you know, again, to have the, the people who are healthy to be the tone setters in the church. It's an amazing thing when that happens. Years ago, I was a youth pastor and, uh, 
had a pretty good youth ministry going on and felt like, oh, yeah, we can reach most teens. And uh, this one Sunday morning, uh, I had a, a teen there at the church come through and bring a friend with them. And I didn't know it at the time, uh, but this kid's 15-year-old kid, uh, yeah, a guy, had, uh, had attempted suicide, had just gotten out of a treatment center, and, uh, and actually came to church that morning on a dare because... This, this friend of his who was in our youth ministry just kept saying, man, come to church with me, come to church with me, you'll find hope, whatever, and stuff. And he's like, I'll come to church. He said, they won't have anything to do with me, right? So there, he's there on a dare. And this dude comes in, and he just, you know, he's a head-to-toe goth, bad attitude. I got the I hate you look on my face. I dare you to talk to me, you know. Um, and he walked in, and I, I, I saw this happen. He didn't make it across the foyer before five adults, I'm not talking teens, adults, walked up, welcomed him, introduced themselves, you know. You could just tell it was a very awkward moment for him because he didn't know what was going on. He goes in, has a seat, sits in front of, of one of the oldest and definitely the nicest lady in the church for worship. And the problem is this boy's jacket has one of the most profanity lace Sid Vicious and the Sex Pistols you know, thing, if you know who that is, on the back of it. That's who she, she worshiped Jesus with Sid Vicious that morning, you know, and, uh, and, and never reacted, you know, when it came time to greet each other. She shook his hand, you know, and everything. It's a good experience for him. He couldn't believe it. So without telling his friend or anybody else, he said, I'm going to come back next Sunday because he thought his friend put everybody up to being nice to him. So he comes into church the next Sunday. He's double amped now because he is, he is convinced that these bunch of phonies, you know, were trying to do something on him. He stepped through the door. I honest, I saw this happen. Stepped through the door that morning. One of the greeters was an older guy named Hal. We used to call him Hugging Hal because he just loved, you know, 70-year-old dude, loved to hug people. And Hal stepped over to him, called him by name, Justin. Good to see you back, man. Gave him a hug. And that boy was disarmed, <laughs> just disarmed. And he sat through that service like a deer in the headlights. And he came back the next week, and he came back the next week. Never set foot in any youth group event activity, any youth ministry, nothing. But at six weeks after church, he comes and he gets me, and he says, Chris, yeah? <laughs> I'm thinking this Jesus is real and I need to meet him. Can you help me? Right? And he came to Christ and at that moment, because he was such a hurting individual, the church already had leaders in place who could mentor him. We had systems in place that could get him rolling with just basic concepts of Christianity, discipleship, so forth. And today, Justin is a full-blown man. He's an officer in the military. He's a chaplain who works with PTSD soldiers. He specifically loves to go to boot camp because that's where he knows kids are running from something to get into the military and he is an evangelism machine, man. It's awesome. But it all started with a hurting person that came into a, compa a compassionate place that had the structure to bring him in and to begin to grow him up in Christ because they had the right leaders in place and it wasn't just depending upon one guy to do it. Third thing. Third thing I would say about becoming a church of compassion is we need to remind ourselves to avoid viewing sin as the root issue. The behavior that you're seeing 
that stands in contrast to God's nature or the Ten Commandments or good church know-how, right, is not the root issue. Sin is a byproduct of something that's wrong inside that needs addressed on an eternal level with salvation, but sometimes even just being able to reconcile spiritual issues, interpersonal issues, just even interpersonal issues with yourself. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, that as a person thinks, therefore they are. And so what you'll find with any person that's struggling with an addiction, any person that's struggling with just really uh, you know, destructive type of behavior or bad habits that they just can't shake. It's not because they love to run back to that. It's because there's some concept about God, about themselves, about life on earth, about relationships that is running interference to the truth. And when you take the time to get to know the person and you can begin to expose what it is that they believe that's not true with the truth of God's word, then by faith they can embrace that and you will see the behavior automatically correct itself. Behavior modification is a great thing if you're training a pet. We are not animals. We, human beings, are made in the image of God. Sin is just our attempt to meet a basic need outside of God's provision for us. That's all sin is. Think it, think it back to Adam and Eve, you know, and, and how Satan went after Eve. How Satan went after Jesus in the temptation. Sin is just an attempt to meet a need outside of God's provision. And isn't it awesome to know that we can share with the hurting. Philippians 2.11 it says, listen, my God will provide your every need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Trust me. Let's walk together. Let's see it happen. Sin is not... The issue, it's an issue, but the way you deal with it is to get to the heart. Number four, recognize the complex needs of the person who is hurting. Recognize the need of the person who is hurting, complex. So here's what I would say, and I'm, I want to be quick about this. I'm not going to get bogged down. I will tell people in counseling that there are four pillars to your wellness that you need to keep your eye on, that you, need to, that you need to address in your life. Biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. Those are four areas that every person needs to be attentive to if they are going to be well. Biologically, you gotta take care of yourself. You gotta know maybe what's predisposition with your DNA, right? Psychological, you know, there are certain things as well that can redline your brain and deplete, you know, the chemistry there and leave you just sort of grasping for which way is up. Now, um, do I get, I get as a counselor all the time, what do you think about pills? What do you think about antidepressants? What do you think about anti-anxiety? What do you think about whatever? Here's what I'll tell you. If a psychiatrist or a doctor gives you a pill, and leads you to believe that it can cure a spiritual issue, that is deplorable. But if there is a supplement that you can take to sort of regulate, you know, and get you an established baseline biologically so that, psycho so that psychologically you can think, 
then it'll open the door for spiritual results to happen in your life. The church maybe can't speak to a certain level of professionalism when it comes to your biological needs or your psychological needs, but there is nothing on earth to be found that compared to the church when it comes to the last two pillars, and that's the social needs that you have and the spiritual needs that you have. Because this is the church, this is a community of faith centered on Christ Jesus. And as the gospel takes root in our life and all of a sudden we come into this vertical alignment with God, the byproduct of that is horizontal, horizontal alignment with our brothers and sisters. Jesus says, listen, you want to nail all the commandments? Start with this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is what we fine-tune the community with to becoming more compassionate and more healers. And the last thing I would say this morning is just the power of a community that is moving in compassion and healing allows it to network with other people in the world that allows it to come and to link arms to even have more impact than just you know, what you might be able to see here working together, which is awesome. And I guarantee you, a new pastor is going to come in and he's going to recalibrate and he's going to say, here's the vision and here's what are we all in and here's what we can all do to start pulling together rather than in different directions. And you're going to see a trajectory set for many years to come that's just going to be awesome. But as the Lord is blessing you and as grace is ignited here in and outside of this church because of the faith community, you're going to have the opportunity to network with other people inside and outside the Christian church. And, and communities that, that really excel in compassion and healing, they seek out who are the trustworthy ones in agencies, in groups, in organizations that may not be exclusively Christian, but who are the ones that we can connect with that have influence? Uh, the reason we have success with the West Virginia Attorney General's office is the Attorney General is a professing Christian, but there's a person that works in under him that like gets it. And the first time I had a set down meeting with this person, they told me, let's pray before we start. <laughs> I know, right? Light bulb, bing, you know? And so, and, and it's just one of those things with do you know the physicians in our community, you know, uh, who either respect Christian faith or they themselves are Christians? Do you know inside people at the DHHR or CPS or wherever it may be, do you know people, you know, who serve, you know, Clarksburg City Council or whatever? Let's be diligent to seek out those people because as a compassion, healing-centered church, you're only going to broaden your ministry impact as those connections are made. So, Lord, this morning, I'm just going to pause there. And, uh, Lord, know that, uh, that the dialogue here for this church is continuing. And it will continue in a way that is powerful. It will continue in a way that has your sovereign fingerprints all over it. Because uh, anybody that knows Clarksburg Baptist Church recognizes that you have been present here in this body uh, since the very beginning. And Lord, you're here today. And so God, uh, as, we, as we wrap up this morning, Lord, speaking to the choir, preaching to people who know all about compassion and healing,
God, help us to be people to understand that compassion is not just tender love, but it's tough love. Help us, Lord, to be people who are looking to not only assimilate wounded people into the community, but are investing in leadership development, people that can multiply the healing work, people that set the tone for discipleship in a church. Help us, Lord, not to see people for their sin, but, Lord, to pursue them relationally, to mend their heart, Lord, to, to, to lift the veils of darkness off of their eyes that they might see the truth and deception might be exposed. And God, we also pray that you would help us to become people who not only can network, but people, uh, God, who reach out and people who uh, know exactly the right connection, those God moments to make. That this church might grow in their capacity to reach many for Christ. That it might be an outpost for the hurting, Lord, in a way that is transformative. And we pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.